Hello and welcome to EduTalks, the educational innovation podcast at the University of Twente. Live from the campus studio, I'm your host Robin van Emloot, and today we'll talk about the future of education. Let's play the saxophone. It's no secret that our education has changed a lot in recent years. We've seen necessities of online and hybrid learning come and go, and now adapt to a different world. With other technologies, like AI and other technology approaching, what will our education be like in the future? My guest today is a professor at the faculty of EEMCS in the topic of algorithms for complex networks. She isn't just a common face in our university, she in fact won the Teacher of the Year 2022 award and continues working on innovating her education. Please welcome to Professor Dr. Nelly Litvak. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Yes, welcome. So I wanted to start out with just a very generic question. And that is, what is your one promise or your one mission you have with teaching for students? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very philosophical one. So feel free to to think about it. I have a very specific answer. I don't need to think about it. Yeah. Although my answer may sound a little bit boring for some, but hopefully not for university audience. Mm -hmm. So there is such thing as a science of education. There is such thing as a science of learning. We know a lot how people learn, and especially this knowledge has grown lately a lot. And universities are scientific institutions. So supposedly they should be advised by science on how to do things. And unfortunately, at this moment, our standard courses are taught very often, like very much like they have been taught like 30 years ago. And that is not at all aligned with current scientific knowledge. So if I have to summarize my mission in like one liner, then I would like to do a lot of work, tangible work for changing that so that university education is done in the way that evidence-based science tells us to do. And and in the basis, you are a doctor on, on mathematics. Um, how did you get involved over the years in, with education and, and start forming this idea of it all? I have been always very much driven to education. Uh, in fact, I chose the university as a, my working place, as my career, motivated by teaching. I wanted to teach at university. That was my primary motivation more than research. And I was always very involved and always was thinking a lot about how to uh, do teaching better. And um, in like now, I don't know how many, maybe almost 30 years that I teach Mm -hmm. at university, I started very young. Um, I have transferred a lot. Uh, I have, my views changed a lot and probably they will continue changing. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So basically I have been doing it from the very beginning. Mm. And then you've seen a lot of changes. Do you feel like the, the these last, what we're we talking about now, already three years since COVID happened? Do you feel that's really been an accelerator or already those 30 years have been a lot of change for you? I have been always uh, changing my education. Of course, Corona accelerated a lot. Hmm. So for me, as an innovator, Corona uh, gave a chance to try out things because nobody knew what to do and Hmm. everything was allowed. So I did some experiments. Not all of them were successful, but 
Yeah, some of them were, but not all of them were successful. Like, for example, once um, I thought, okay, how do I do exam online? Mm. So I let students um, record their answers to the questions on videos mm. and upload the video. That was very informative. However, when 120 students started uploading their videos, the whole canvas crashed <laughs> and nobody could <laughs> upload anything anymore. And one student wrote to me personally that that was their most stressful experience through oh, wow. entire uh, university time. Uh, so yeah, so not everything worked out great, but, um, uh, but I tried a lot of things and I learned a lot from that. Although, I started doing a lot online already before Corona. It was actually already needed before. Yeah, we were talking beforehand. We were recording this at uh, the Spiegel in the University of Twente at the video uh, uh, studio, actually. And how you talked about it was over four years ago that you started or what last year with, with recording micro lectures? Yes. Yeah, so the story goes, I'm teaching this course, Statistics for Mechanical Engineering. That's mm. one of my favorite courses because... Um, because the, every course has its own challenge. I like all my courses. The, way, the reason I like statistics for mechanical engineering is because these students are very serious students and they are very, how should I say, uh, in a good way pragmatic. So mm. they want the knowledge that they perceive is, is useful. And uh, the challenge there is to actually convince them, no, convince I don't like the word, but basically to achieve some agreement to the, with them mm -hmm. that that statistics is something that gives them something useful and is related to their profession. So that has been challenged for, for basically all the years that I have been teaching this course. And um, what happened to this course is that at one year, suddenly I had really low turn up at the classes, at the lectures. Although I, my lectures had a lot of mechanical engineering examples and in general, I'm not such a bad lecturer, but somehow that there was like sudden like drop, you know, mm. from one generation of students to another, long before COVID. And, um, and then I thought, okay, so probably my lectures are a little bit outdated. They're like a little bit lengthy. There are too many detours to different things. So I thought, okay, you know what? I will improve lecture. So what, what frustrated me is this, that there were like 30 people at the lecture and maybe 150 at the exam. Well, at tutorial, there were even less. So then it, I had the feeling like they like don't need me, you know, they just mm. want a, a check mark, you know. So that was very disappointing for me because I want to teach the students. I want to be of added value and, and I felt I wasn't. So then I thought, okay, I will improve my lectures. And usually students give you a chance, like usually at the first lecture they show up and if they find it useful, then they keep coming. Then I thought, okay, I will improve it. I will in include some interactive questions. I will uh, chop them in smaller pieces. I will make them more appealing and, and things like that shorter. I have reworked completely all the slides. It was a lot of work. And what do you think out of 150 students, how many showed up at lectures? And in, at the first course uh, in, the, in the new after, one? After I reworked the lectures. I, I'm, uh, I want to say with all the work you had like over the hundreds coming up. But no, it was again end, 30. Yeah, you're still there. It was again 30. Speaking of which, how, how useful lecture is perceived by students. Yeah. So, okay. So then I thought, okay, since they don't come to my lectures, my lectures should come to them. And this is when I started uh, recording my lectures and putting them online. It was in the 
uh, fall 2019. And I spent a lot of time on this. Mm. And my many of my colleagues were saying, why are you doing this? Like, you are crazy. <laughs> and then COVID starts it and I say, okay, who is crazy now? <laughs> <laughs> do you still use those videos you recorded uh, yes. all these years ago? Yes, and I use I have them on YouTube as well. Mm. And I I didn't check lately how many views, but there are some thousands views. And the views on YouTube are not from my students because to my students I make them available through Canvas and Vimeo, mm. so they watch it through Vimeo. So this YouTube is just all students from outside. Have you, have you ever checked the statistics? If there is any specific country or something people are really interested in, or is it the Netherlands? Uh, yeah, I did check, but it was so long ago. I, yeah. I, I didn't check it before coming here, so I can say. But I, I don't know. My guess would be maybe 20,000 views or something, but total mm -hmm. for the playlist. And and through other ways of, of measuring, like evaluations and so on, did you see a change, maybe in grading even, after you, you switched to, to using these videos? Well, it was not the only thing I did. Uh, so uh, my statistics from Hank Engineering maybe became the first course that I tried to make kind of what is called blended or flipped classroom, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. um, so I realized that um, now that that my videos were online and uh, in the class in the class I could use quizzes, so I find them more are useful. Um, but still, turn up is not is not great. I think it's larger than it used to be for the lectures because mm -hmm. um, we discussed some questions that they already know from the videos are difficult. But still, it's not like by far not everybody shows up. But I need some way to to see like they they need to do something, you know, and I need some way to see it. Otherwise, what is my role as a teacher? So I have also set up weekly quizzes so they do quizzes and I can see how they progress. Um, and the uh, um, interesting thing that I do about these quizzes is that they are multiple attempts. So students ha can redo them many, many times as long as needed. Mm -hmm. But um, I have quite high passing threshold for these quizzes, like not 60%, but maybe like 70% of mm -hmm. the points. And um, uh, I... Uh, this course doesn't have exam anymore. I introduced assignments instead, like project-based a little bit. And um, to access the assignment submission, you need to pass all the quizzes. And of course, they can work together and they can help each other, I know. But point is that when a still uh, the numbers are different for everybody, so you still have to go for it yourself or with your friend. And um, if you cheat it, you know you cheat it, you know. So basically, I, I try to give them some tangible... Uh, feedback points, like for example, in the class, I have multiple choice questions. If you answer incorrectly, that's by the way in mathematics is exactly moment when you learn. It is really a wrong perception that in mathematics it's very important to answer correctly and quickly. It's simply not correct. I am happy with my class if if uh, most questions, most students answer it wrongly, because when they make these mistakes, that exactly is the point when they learn. It's also how our brain operates. It's that mm -hmm. brain activity is the highest and, and new connections emerge. So um, so I ask them questions that are, in that sense, a little bit provocative and directed to common mistakes. So many of them find it useful and challenging and, and they come. Uh, and in fact, it is a form of feedback for them. So they are actively busy and they also get the feedback. And same about quizzes. So if they answer only, then they see that the answer is wrong. And and then they have to redo it. And uh, 
even if they just ask their friend and like inserted a formal compute it without understanding, then they know that they did that. I do not need to police them. They know themselves. So, so it's really the, the responsibility up to them as well. I think we share responsibility in this course. Mm-hmm. So I my responsibility is to give them these assignments and to give them this feedback and to to answer their questions if they ask questions in discussions or in the classes. I also give as a sort of assignment, more homework assignment. So, and to give them feedback, but it is their responsibility, of course, to um, to honestly do all this. Mm-hmm. And then um, you, you described how you had this issue with students not showing up during lectures, and then you you transfer uh, transformed your education. And well, last year you had quite a reward for it. Yes, teacher of the year. <laughs> yes. How is that for you then? Wow, for me it felt like a lifetime achievement award mm-hmm. because um, I have working on this many many years, and um, in the university, um, you know, research is very highly intensivized and education less. Although everybody admits that education is very important. But I think, as we discussed before, one of the reasons why education is under-intensified is it's very hard to measure what it means mm. to be an excellent teacher. And uh, I have done a lot of things that um, took me a lot of time and on the surface may seem, yeah, you just chose to do that and everybody can do that if they choose to do it. Well, maybe, but it is a lot of work, I can assure you. Um, and there is also a lot of growth with this and none of it is really easy to to measure and make tangible. And in that sense, this award was kind of a recognition for all this work that I have done for years. And is there any specific aspect of it all that you think that really granted you that? Or is it really the total picture you describe at the moment? Like really all that's coming together, that made it that you were rewarded with it? Well... Now that you ask, uh, I, I didn't think about this question before, so I have to an- answer spontaneously. Mm. And the first word that comes to my mind is empathy, actually. Empathy? Yes. That, you know, uh, we have this... Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, so empathy in the sense that... Um, in the sense that um, at some point, when I understand very well how my course design works Mm -hmm. and what students have to do, then in some sense, when I really think very thoroughly what they have to do, then I have to empathize with the students. And then I feel, oh, but this is difficult and this is a lot of load or this is actually unclear. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, for example, I write a text on the Canvas page instructions that I think it's very clear. And then a student writes to me, oh, but I didn't understand this and that. And then I think, well, everything was clear. Why didn't you read it? But then I go to Canvas page to the place where this, that the students mentioned and I see what the student meant. There is, of course, it always can be done can be done, done better, and um, then the selection for the best teacher award was uh, was this. Um, first, uh, I won the best teacher of applied mathematics. By the way, I won by one vote. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was a little bit even unfair because because um, the last speaker was really the last speaker and uh, our time was up in the room and people started bumping oh. on the door so it was really unfortunate for the for my colleague uh, and I felt a little bit uncomfortable about that but um, I won by one vote only so but um, for for the um, yeah, so first you have to be nominated and there are three teachers nominated for the best teacher of applied mathematics and then in the final you need to you need to give a presentation. So every, usually people give interesting, very entertaining presentations about mathematics. It's what I used to do before when I was nominated a couple of times. But this time I decided to do something else. I decided to tell them something about my experience with how they study. And in particular, I addressed um, two things. One was illusion of shortcut and one was a dragon. <laughs> a dragon? Yes, yes. Um, but I will let you wait a little bit. So the illusion of shortcut was that people have this illusion that in mathematics you can quickly jump to the answer. Mm-hmm. I keep teaching them to think about the problem first. That is very hard for them. And uh, that results in mistakes. For example, at the year before this award, I, I gave a multiple choice test and they had to compute an area of a, par- a parallelogram, an area. Mm-hmm. And the possible answers were 8, 6, 1, uh, minus 6, and minus 8. And then during presentation, students started laughing, like, did anybody choose a my- negative answer for, for an area of, mm. a, of a shape, of a geometric shape? You will be surprised, but 25% of the students hit minus 6. Mm. And then you can say it's a stupid mistake. Basically, calculation go, there is intermediate step in calculation that gives you minus six, and then they saw minus six and they thought it was an answer. But why did they st- stop at intermediate step? Because they didn't think about the problem. They didn't think about, I have to compute an area. They thought about, oh, what computation should I make? You know? And uh, that was basically the shortcut. You have to really think about the problem before you jump to the solution. Mm-hmm. But the, the dragon is, of course, the stress. I noticed that lately students are, are very stressed. And I do not really, I mean, I'm not psychologist, I do not really see why they are so stressed, but I know that the exams, for example, standard exams are extremely stressful for the students. And I have addressed that um, in this presentation. So my presentation was actually about them and about how they study. And apparently it was, I didn't, I didn't plan to win because usually you give an entertaining math talk, but mm-hmm. I didn't do that. So I thought, okay, I didn't comply with the assignment. So it's okay if I give very little mm-hmm. vote, but at least I say what I wanted to say. And I won. It was very surprising. And then for the, for the uh, central award, we had to give again a micro lecture. And again, there was a, very inter- multidisciplinary audience from all faculties. And I was thinking very hard, what could be appealing for them? And I also wanted to show how I teach. So I had quiz in mm. this in this presentation. I had the WooClub quiz. WooClub is a great tool that our university uses for quizzes. But I wanted to ask them questions that make them feel kind of not comfortable if they answer only. Yeah, feeling a bit safe yes. in, in that environment. Yes, and that yeah. is very important. In fact, educational sciences tell us that making mistakes is very important, but also feeling safe about it mm. is very important because if you are scared of making mistakes, then you will not learn from that. You really need to realize that this is the learning. This is admired. This is 
encouraged. You you have to be comfortable and free to make mistakes. So I try to formulate my questions in such way. And in fact, the, the jury also said in their conclusion that um, that it was a little bit confronting, but they felt comfortable and they felt they were learning something instead of being stupid. And um, that was exactly what I wanted to achieve. Um, you know, um, our colleague uh, David, who is doing this uh, needle-free injections, mm -hmm. uh, he wrote recently a book. Um, uh, how it is called? Empathetic entrepreneurial engineering. So he says that in entrepreneurship, even in technical entrepreneurship, empathy for for people who will use your technology is a key factor. So I was surprised that in fact whatever innovation you do, not even per se technical innovation, but also in education, I think also, if I have to answer to your question, what exactly makes, like, brings you forward with this, I think empathy is, is again the answer. It's, it's uh, very similar to the previous episode I've recorded over here with uh, EduTalks with, uh, about, uh, indeed, entrepreneurship and innovation. But they also say, well, for students to, to be feeling about about doing entrepreneurship they have to feel safe about making mistakes and uh, in depth even with with education itself in learning about math you also have to be comfortable in learning uh, making mistakes but also reflecting on them in fact maybe even the more important to be able to reflect yes. on that during the process yes uh, making mistakes is very crucial and the problem is that students come from high school with this idea that mm. math is about getting it right and if they answer wrong then the first reaction is oh i cannot do it or I, i'm not smart enough and our society puts a lot of emphasis on being smart and this feeling i'm not smart enough is extremely stressful i think that is the main reason why people are scared of mm. mathematics uh so um but of course, they from school they come to university, and at school they were like one of the best. And now suddenly, it's very challenging, and they don't understand this, and they make mistakes, and it takes them a while to realize that this is a very very natural process. In fact, I think maybe it will make sense to train students about learning, and actually, um, both students and teachers, uh, university teachers, do not necessarily aware of how the learning process really is happening. And that is because university students are just high school graduates. So mostly mm -hmm. what they learned is some subject matter for different subjects. University teachers, if you start with definitions, university teachers are trained scientists. These are people with PhD degree in their respective area of research. They are researchers. And um, I can tell that most, maybe majority, far majority of, of them are extremely passionate mm -hmm. about, about passing on their knowledge to a new generation. And many of them can tell amazing story about their subject. And that, may, of course, inspires the, student, the students. But it is not right to expect that these people who are experts in their respective fields will know a lot about psychology or um, or neurophysiology or educational sciences on, on the topic of how people learn. And it would be very useful to educate uh, people on that. And it would be very useful, for example, to spend some time at the beginning of first year to teach students 
what happens in their brains when mm. they are learning, and it will be very helpful to to give such well at least some small online course about this for teachers as well, because there are many unexpected um, things and unexpected discovery or something that I actually know, but it's one thing to know, and another thing to actually read it black and white or have a quiz about mm. it. So vague, like a little bit some general understanding that is somewhere in your head, when it is formulated properly, it also goes a long way. And I think, I think many teachers will, when you tell them about this learning, they say, yes, I already knew it. This is what I observe. But it's one thing to kind of know it and another thing to really know it. But then um, we, we kind of move on to, to the future of education and, and trying to incorporate all of these things and all of the other developments that are happening that can be quite hard, setting a sort of priority. Uh, let's, let's give it as an open question. What do you think is the future of education? What do we need to, to keep in mind and how do we facilitate that? Well, for this, this question I already received a couple of times and I have an answer and my answer is, I don't know about future of education. Mm -hmm. What will be the future of education? But I know what I will do. We can otherwise cut off the episode here. We uh, wanted to discuss the future. <laughs> yeah, I I know what what uh, in in general lines I envision education that is organized in the way as evidence based research tells us it should be done. So education, like life science, like medicine, medical sciences, like in in, in information technology, they should go hand in hand with the latest finding on research in this respective area. Education is a gigantic sector, and this gigantic sector has to be advised by corresponding science. That is, but that is very abstract. That is very, very, uh, how should I say? Visionary. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what they call it, whatever. It doesn't describe you university of the future, mm. let me put it this way. But I think this is the way to go. And, um, I have specific steps that I outlined for myself that I want to do about it. Mm -hmm. And the first step that I'm taking already now um, is dubbed um, um, teaching teams. So the teaching teams idea is very easy. So basically I start with a humble perspective that as a mathematician, I'm not an expert in education. As a mathematician, I'm an expert in mathematics. And I'm passionate about passing my mathematics knowledge towards to my students. So then um, if I want to give a course which is advised by scientific knowledge, then it has to be course where students are engaged in activities that are effective in terms of their learning and in terms of their professional growth. So these activities have to be designed properly, right? So students have to be provided material and that activities have to be designed. Okay. So my point is that as a mathematician, I do not necessarily have a knowledge of how to design such activities. And I definitely do not have time for that because being a mathematician or any scientist, is already hard enough. I mean, even keeping up with my own area is very difficult. I cannot keep up with educational sciences, science as well. That is not possible. Therefore, I think activities should be developed 
uh, well, with me or or uh, maybe should be developed in general and then with me can be discussed, okay, which of these activities are most suitable for, for my course with some template already or some several templates, mm-hmm. I don't know. Then comes educational technology at Tech. It's increasingly complicated. At our university, we use, I don't know, maybe mm, a couple of dozens of different tools. It's It's unrealistic to expect from a teacher to master all these tools. So education technology for every course has to be supported. Canvas sites have to be arranged by people who know how to do that. And we have such people. We have uh, e-learning specialists who can do it brilliantly. So that should be, this task should be shared with people who know how to do it best. Then as a teacher, so then I can fill out content in the, with this like nicely designed activities. And then as a teacher, I can execute these activities. So I can interact with the students. I give them feedback. Also here, it is good if somebody teaches me how to give feedback. But I assume I know that already. But that is also a very, very weak assumption. <laughs> mm. um, and then I do assessment of the students, which is also teacher's responsibility. So I assess how they mastered the, the subject and give them a grade at the end in whatever form. I hope in the university of the future, there will be no numerical grades, but it should be more like portfolio approach. But okay, whatever method it is, portfolio, grade, I assessed my students, I gave my conclusions. After that, these grades ideally should be published with one click of a button. Or if it is more than, if it is two clicks of a button, then it's one click too many. Hmm. I do not know why I should be the one administrating the grades. I think the, the moment I finished my assessment, my job on the course is done, except some evaluation maybe with the team, how it went. So I envision a team that involves people who understand didactics, people who understand and can do EdTech, and the teacher who is responsible for the content and the student work on assessment, and administrator who can, if needed, but maybe we can have software that publishes at one click. That is also possible. But is infrastructure has to be provided? Well, infrastructure should be provided in one or another way. So to me, for example, a series that sent is not necessarily great news because I don't understand why I should do that. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't understand why uh, people came up with idea that that should be my responsibility. I still don't have any any proper answer for this. So we should be humble in the sense what what is our expertise and we should stick to that expertise. We should we should not anymore think of or teachers are responsible for education. No, university as organization is responsible for education and university hires people with a wide range of expertise from didactics at tech to subject matter to uh, administration and infrastructure. And these people have to work together to provide our students modern, scientifically justified education. So you're really saying the role of a teacher is more of a, a very important link in a whole chain uh, for in, in order to actually finally provide education. I don't see it even as a chain. I see it more as a project. It mm. is a project where everybody carries their own responsibility. Mm. I tried this out in two pilots, uh, two courses I run, and um, there were some like, and I learned also some what what works and what doesn't, and not everything was ideal in these pilots, uh, but uh, but I learned a lot. For example, um, I worked with really really proficient e-learning specialist who set up a really beautiful 
tool for for this course and i was very happy with this but mm-hmm. since um i didn't have much understanding of the tool i asked them to to write to the students how to use it and now i think actually that maybe not maybe teacher should be the one communicating to the students otherwise for students it's very confusing getting this all these messages mm-hmm. from different people you know but um i may also always ask okay is this message correct or not or things like that but but without this support i wouldn't use this tool at all yeah and then that relationship again between student and teacher is very important then yes yeah yes and that is where we should focus because for example people say okay i prefer to lecture on campus rather than online because i want interaction mm-hmm. but let's be honest how much interaction really is happening in on campus lecture it's very minimal so why i uh, i am for putting videos online for example actually i'm i don't ask everybody to i don't think everybody should make videos i think actually textbooks should come accompanied with videos mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether it's my videos or other videos every person can explain things and i communicate to my students i always have a chance to explain it my way so no matter who provides the videos but i think information should be available before the class to the student so that in the class we actually have time for interaction if i need to spend in class time on explaining things then there is no time for interaction it's, it's really funny I, last year i did a uh, a session at the, the faculty of bms with a colleague of mine and we had this huge thing in the news at that moment that students would not be showing up uh, to lectures just after the whole lockdown time people were allowed to come back to university not an, a maximum amount of students uh, that had to be there everyone was allowed back in Still, people weren't showing up. So we had this discussion with those, both students and teachers in one room and exchanged with each other. What, what's happening? Why, are, why aren't you coming? And what do you expect from a student to come there? What do you expect with those interactions? And it was really nice to see the students saying like, okay, but I'll just do my calculations at that point. I come from a city uh, further from Enschede. Um, I'm not really having any interaction. I'm just sitting there and listening. And I also have... So on any other appointment, any sort of activity. So then the student just decided, you know, you know what, I'll just do it from home. I'll just do the recording, watch that. And that's the sort of sort of connection people still have to make. Like if people are not physically present during your classroom, does that then still mean that they are not anymore involved with your education? No. Um, yeah, it's a difficult question. So uh, I don't even know where to start. So first mm. of all, I read this and uh, I follow some educational scientists and I read this, I think, in some discussions. So basically, educational science more or less discarded the question, what is better online or on campus? Because that is basically a post question. It's not it's not a correct question to ask. So the, the thing that defines success of education is the course design mainly what students do during the course. Mm-hmm. That is what, what is defining for course success. And um, in that sense, um, that students not showing up to the lecture simply only proves that, yeah, they don't they don't uh, consider it worthy. On the other hand, we also shouldn't trust students too much on that because people are famously um, bad in evaluating their own cognition. So, for example, even if class is interactive, I heard in my last evaluation, for example, it was written that, okay, so during the class, there were these quiz questions, but 
there was no new material, so that's why some students decided it was not uh, worth it to come. But point is that it's not about receiving new material. You learn not when you receive new material. You learn when you do something with the material that you already saw. And, um, and students do not necessarily know that. So my view on that probably will be very unpopular, but I will still say that. So I believe that once we have done the design of the course so that all courses are provably, um, all activities are provably effective so that we use only activities that science agrees are effective at mm -hmm. this moment and they are fought through and they're important for learning this material, then we can actually expect mandatory attendance. And that's over all courses, not just one course. No, over yeah. all courses. I think if the activities are thought through, well designed and useful, we can expect mandatory attendance. And to be honest, I also do not completely understand. I mean, that, that notion of freedom, like I'm a mathematician, let's start with definition. What freedom exactly are we talking about? Like in high school, kids have to attend all the classes. At work, we tend to attend all our scheduled appointments. So why is university time is such a lifetime low that mm -hmm. students can choose what to attend and what to, not to attend? I believe that the choice for this freedom, quote unquote, the real reason is that, in fact, it is possible to pass the course without attending the class because of the way the courses are given. Mm. So we allow students to skip our activities, I, in my opinion, to, to great, in great extent, because we also know that these activities are not per se very useful. And you really say uh, that um, it's not just a focus on how can I replace this instruction in, in a lecture by a video, for instance, but the, you really need to do a further step back to your whole course design and maybe even of our whole module or program. Yes, video is not a magic wand. I mean, video is just means of 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 giving information, hmm. right? So you you can give the students videos, preferably reasonable quality, so that they good sound, good good uh, uh, picture, and uh, maybe not too long. But but. Um, it is not about how the mode of receiving information. They can receive it from the video, they can receive it from the book or from YouTube, wherever they want. But the important is not what we say in video or in class. The important is what students do. Mm -hmm. And this must be meaningful activities that are directed, that are targeted for spe specific learning goals. And that is what we should do. And once we have done that, then we can expect students to attend these activities. Yeah, it's uh, the, the the vision of education of the UT is now going around. It will be uh, be shown to the URAT at the university, and I think the, the the phrase they use a lot is "learning by doing." That's central in the vision of education. I think that really aligns with what you are saying as well. Yes, unfortunately, I'm afraid that this can, uh, this uh, learning by doing can be very much misinterpreted mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, you know, people often uh, focus very much on specific education method. Like, for example, they say, oh, it used to be all in class. Now it is all on videos. It's another trend, another fashion. Or now it will be all challenge-based learning. It's another trend, another fashion. 
the point is that these are like different categories, all this video or, or lecture or challenge-based learning. These are just like some didactical methods, right? But uh, most important is what exactly students want to learn. Mm. And if my goal is that they learn linear algebra, then learning by doing can be writing mathematical proof. It doesn't have to be challenge-based. So uh, challenge-based learning on, on a specific task from a company doesn't mm. need to be. So, so I'm afraid when you say learning by doing, then people immediately start thinking about projects, challenge-based learning, and they say, oh, now we will discard all the classical education. But it's not true because proving a theorem is also doing. So in that sense, um, maybe some more general formulation in terms of... Um, uh, yeah, I don't. I can't come up with formulation right now. But mm -hmm. in in a formulation involving engagement, for example, that probably engagement is may will be maybe a little bit broader term than than, than doing. Mm -hmm. Although I agree with doing. Only then we have to explain uh, what we mean by that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to conclude this uh, dialogue about the the future of education. I think uh, you really plead for that, that course design all over uh, the, the campus, all over university, bringing that all together. That's that's what we really need. I think so. Yes, I think we have to focus on course design and what our students do. Yes. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, first of all, for uh, joining me in on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the video team of the University of Twente. If you want to consult on your own education or check out the latest educational innovation, you can check out the teams I work at. The Center of Expertise in Learning and Teaching, better known as CELT, and the team Technology Enhanced Learning and Teaching, also known as TELT. If you want to be part of an episode or have any other comments or feedback, feel free to reach out to us using our email address edutalks at u20.nl. And until the next time, I wish you a very good day.